Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a crowd podcast. It's a summer's day in the middle of 2005, outside a courtroom in California. The sun's hot, bright in your eyes, bouncing off the pavement. Not the sort of day to be standing around, a day for the shade, for a cool drink with ice. But there's people everywhere, men and women with painted signs, with banners they've made themselves. They're being held back by a fence, but they're jumping around, cheering wildly. Photographers and TV cameras in there, recording it all. All the happiness, all the mad excitement. And there's a woman in with them on a metal stepladder. Middle-aged, blonde hair to her shoulders, pale green top. In front of her is a brown wooden crate. Through the slats, you can see doves, loads of them, all white, maybe 12 or 13 of them, all squashed in together. And every time, there's a huge cheer from these people. Like they've just heard the best possible news. The woman reaches into the crate, pulls out a white dove and throws it up into the blue sky. Dove after confused dove, flapping away into the trees. The woman clutching her heart each time she lets one go. Like all her prayers have been answered. Like this is some weird religious ceremony. Like this all makes sense. Why? Because nothing is normal here. This is the trial of the king of pop. Wacko Jacko, as some refer to him, MJ. Okay, you want the formal stuff? It's the people of the state of California versus Michael Joseph Jackson. Jackson's been charged with molesting a 13-year-old boy, a kid in remission from cancer. Ten counts against him, but none of this is new. Twelve years back, he'd been accused of molesting a 13-year-old, settled it out of court for $23 million. Three years on, he settled another case for $2 million. This one? It's been going on for four months. Now they're reading out the verdicts for each charge. How do you find a defendant? Guilty or not guilty? And every time the answer comes over the radio and pings on the cell phones, not guilty. The crowd in the hot sun whoop and cheer and hug 
and the woman on the stepladder pulls out another white dove and throws it into the sky. Ten counts, ten acquittals. And then Jackson comes out the courthouse and the crowd behind their fence miles away go absolutely crazy. He's under a black umbrella, keeping the sun off his pale face. So skinny. Black suit, black tie, dark glasses, long, straight, black hair, down to his shoulders, no kink or curl. No celebration from Jackson. Into a black limo, head down, security guards all around him. Nothing for those fans. All those crying with joy, hugging screaming. The woman on her ladder doesn't seem to mind. She's still got some doves flapping away inside the cage. Someone says to her, doesn't any of this worry you? The stuff he's accused of doing, the way these stories keep coming. And she says, he's just a good human being. People took advantage of him and misunderstood him. He's just too generous for his own good. So this is a triumph for Michael Jackson, right? He's free. He's in the clear. He was lost. Now he's found. He can do what he wants again. Make more music. Go back to his ranch at Neverland. He's only 45 years old. He's got half his life ahead. That's what everyone thinks. That sunny afternoon. But no one understands what's coming. No one knows where he's going. Except he's not free He's trapped by his spending, by his addictions, by his past. And he's not clear of any of it. He's still on the run from what he used to be, from what else he's done in a strange, unforgettable, disturbing life. This may be the strangest time of all. This is Michael Jackson after the trial, falling further into the darkness, hurtling, towards the end. The most famous entertainer there's ever been. He's broke. So this is how it begins. Michael Jackson doesn't go back to Neverland. He goes to Bahrain. It's Sheikh Abdullah who invites him, promises to help pay some of the millions he owes in legal fees. It's a weird sort of deal. There's talk about private shows and there's sightings of Jackson in shopping malls wearing traditional Arabic dress covering his face. There's rumours the Sheikh wants to record an album, his own album, with Jackson on it. It doesn't happen and Jackson runs again. The Sheikh threatens to take him to court, says he's owed money for a Ferrari, for rent, for medical treatments. And this time, he ends up in Ireland. Not Dublin either, not a big hotel in the city. In the sticks. A place in County Westmeath, down a long stone drive with potholes, with a cow shed that's been converted into a cottage and a recording studio. Because it's Jackson, it gets weirder. He's got his kids with him, Paris, Prince, and Blanket. Blanket's the one he waved out of a hotel room that time. 
You remember. He doesn't have the usual limo, so goes everywhere with a local taxi driver called Ray in an old borrowed people carrier. When rumors start flying around the little villages nearby, I swear I saw Michael Jackson. The owner of the studio takes the piss. Yeah, and I saw Elvis. But Jackson's got no money. Keeps spending other people's. The man who sold more than a hundred million records is in so much debt, it makes no sense. Three hundred million dollars. That's what he owes. So he gambles again, moves to Vegas, talks about doing some shows, getting a residency, borrows a 10-bedroom mansion, and then barely leaves it unless he's shopping again. This is what he looks like now. Same straight black hair, those slip-on black shoes he used to moonwalk in, but with the backs trodden down, like the shoes are too big. Jackets like he's borrowed them from some mad army, all frills and fake medals. His kids under mesh blankets or feather masks. He wants to buy another house, of course he does, but he can't. He's borrowed $270 million from the bank, secured the loan against Neverland, against the music rights he owns, his songs and the Beatles ones he bought years back. The bank sold that loan to a company that does bad debt. They're now charging him 20% interest. Debt on top of debt on top of debt. One of his advisors says, right, we don't have to sell Neverland. We could just sell all the stuff in it. The statues, the fairground rides, all the stuff Jackson's blown millions on each year. They get an auctioneer in. He spends months going through it all. This obsessive hoarding piles of the bizarre and the forgotten. Looks like it could raise a decent amount, make a dent in it all. And then Jackson stops it. Can't deal with it. Listens to other advisors who tell him what he wants to hear. You can keep it, all of it. Now there's new photos of him being pushed around Vegas in a wheelchair. Now he's wearing pajamas and a mask. They reckon he's still spending $30 million a year. It doesn't make sense. What does he do? The only thing he knows how to. Announces he'll go back on the road to a massive comeback tour. He can't really walk. His last album was seven years back. It was his worst selling one. He's not toured for 10 years, not danced on a stage for five. But the money he's being offered is massive. 31 shows at the O2 in London. That's how he'll escape. That's what he thinks, the man in the mask, the man in the chair. It's never straightforward with Jackson. Why 31 shows? Because Prince has done 21 nights at the L2 the year before, and Jackson wants to outdo him. The story is, he wanted Prince to do a duet one time for the album, Bad. Prince said no. Jackson's never forgotten. This is revenge. 
They call it his final curtain call. That's the marketing angle. And hundreds of thousands register to get tickets. And it all gets out of control. The promoter says, why stop at 31? Why not do 50 shows? Think of the money we can make. And Jackson says yes, because this is what he wants to hear. I'll do it, he says, if you give me a country estate to stay in. Stately home, big grounds, horses, the lot. The other thing he wants? A big ceremony at the end. A Guinness World Records thing. Biggest shows ever. Most money made. Back on top. So it all starts. Auditions for dancers, musicians and lighting people and sound people, all at the theatre in Hollywood, working seven days a week. Jackson, he starts training with the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, that's right. Lou Ferrino. Not green anymore like he is in the TV show, but still six foot five and 22 stone. Jackson loves kids' TV shows like The Hulk, loves kids' films, watches them all the time. He's obsessed with Oliver, the old musical. You've got to pick a pocket or two, that one. He's become friends with Mark Lester, the little blonde kid who was the star. They're the same age. Lester's the godfather to all three of Jackson's kids. You are some people. Lester's the sperm donor for them too. He never denies it, but we're losing ourselves in the madness here. Right, let's get back to the training. Jackson can't do much, uses exercise bands, a Swiss ball, tries walking on a treadmill. All the time, he's wearing those black suit trousers and slip-on black shoes. Means he won't have to change when he goes to rehearsals afterwards. No one will have to see him. And no one says anything about how thin he is, how weak, how he says... He wants a video playing on stage of the Victoria Falls that he wants a helicopter to film it. No one says anything about the drugs he's using. There's one called propofol. It's a sedative. Surgeons use it in hospitals for general anesthetics. Jackson's on it every night just to get off to sleep. He calls it his bedtime milk because it's creamy in color and thick. No one takes propofol to sleep. No doctor should just dish it out, hook up people at home to a drip. But this is Jackson, and people do what he wants. One doctor turns him down, he hires another one. The next one won't get it in for him, he gets it himself. He uses a false name on his prescriptions, calls himself Omar. One pharmacy in Beverly Hills claims they're owed $100,000 in prescriptions. That's one pharmacy. Then there's the Xanax. You take this for anxiety. One pill calms you down. Jackson, he's taking as many as 40 a night. That's what his staff say. As the rehearsals begin, Jackson's got a new doctor, a man called Conrad Murray. He's important. Remember that name. He's on a $150,000 a month retainer. Good money. What would you do for that money? And this is what people see. The dancers, the musicians, the show directors. 
They hear Jackson missing notes. Then they hear him joke, that's why we rehearse. They hear him talking to himself, muttering always the same phrase. Why can't I choose? Sometimes he locks himself in his bathroom at home, refuses to come out. The guy in charge of the show starts losing it, shouts at the security guard, just get him here. Have you got a key? Just do what it takes. There's a woman who does Jackson's hair and makeup, has done it on all his big tours, looked after him for 27 years. She barely recognizes him when she sees him now. She says he seems frightened, paranoid. She says when she touches his face to put on makeup, it's like touching ice. She covers him with blankets, tries to make him sit by a heater. She thinks, I've never seen him this thin. His bodyguard senses it too, sees the paranoia that Jackson thinks he's going to be assassinated on stage, has to talk him out of wearing a bulletproof vest. There's something else the makeup woman thinks. The one who's been on all the tours, traveled the world with him, seen him do entire years on the road. She looks at the schedule for the L2 and thinks, he can't do this. There's too many, too close together. She thinks he might last a week. It's 19 days before the first show in London. They're doing full dress rehearsals in LA, six hours of it, three for Jackson. He's in his dressing room before finally eating something, chicken and broccoli. Then he comes out and does the whole show. It's working, that's what they tell him. All those people who borrowed your moves down the years, Justin Timberlake, Usher, the Backstreet Boys, none of them can do it like you. That's what he hears. He finishes with Earth Song. That's the big finale. The last song he'll ever sing. Walks off stage, hugs his manager and says, this is our time again. It's time for us to take it back. He hugs the dancers, waves to the musicians and technical crew, tells them good night. They drive him home, back to his rented mansion. The doctor's already there, Conrad Murray. It's now one in the morning and Jackson can't sleep. He has a shower, lies down in his bedroom. All around him are bottles of pills, syringes and tablets. There's an oxygen tank and an IV drip all set up. Jackson lies there and asks the doctor to put his cream on him. His skin is dry and itchy, damaged. This is when he wants the propofol, the anaesthetic, his bedtime milk. 60 nights in a row he's had it. This thing they give you once for serious surgery. Murray doesn't want to give him any more, says it's not real sleep. He's scared by how obsessed Jackson is with it. How Jackson has worked out how to inject it himself. How he knows to mix it with something called Idocaine, to stop it feeling like it's burning him inside. He looks at Jackson's arms 
at the veins shriveled up from too many needles and too many drips, full of blood clots and scars. So he tries something else, puts him on a saline drip in his leg for dehydration, gives him a Valium tablet to send him off to sleep. Jackson does not sleep. 2am, Murray gives him 2 milligrams of another sedative through the drip. Lorazepam this time. 3am, more drugs, this time midazolam. That's another sedative, a stronger one. There's still lights on and music playing. Murray asks Jackson if he can turn them down, tells him to try meditation. 3.20am, Jackson sleeps. Half three, Jackson is awake again. Now he's panicking, begging Murray. He tells him the drugs aren't working. He says he has to sleep, has to be ready for the concerts. Says he'll have to cancel the trip to London if he can't sleep. Awake at 4am, awake at 5am. Two more milligrams of sedative. Awake at 6am. The sun coming up again. Awake at 7am. Two more milligrams. Jackson is still awake at 10am. Now the doctor's desperate too. Jackson's pleading for his milk. Says it works. Says, just make me sleep no matter what. At 10.50am, the doctor cracks. He sticks 25 milligrams of propofol in the drip, mixes with lidocaine so it doesn't burn so bad going in. It takes four minutes to empty in. Five minutes later, Jackson is asleep. The doctor stays and the doctor watches. Jackson's usually a snorer. He's not snoring this time, but his heart rate looks okay. 70 beats a minute. One thing that's normal, at least. 11.20, Murray goes to the bathroom. He's gone two minutes. When he comes back, Jackson's chest has stopped moving. His heart rate is 122. Panic. He tries to get him breathing, tries mouth to mouth, tries pumping his chest. Nothing. He picks up the phone to call for help. The phone doesn't work. He picks up his mobile, then realizes he has no idea what the address is here. It's a rented house. 911 It's half an hour until security downstairs finally call 911. It's half 12 before the paramedics arrive. Panic everywhere, the three kids awake and screaming, the doctor trying to clear the room of pills and bottles. The paramedics, they don't even know it's Jackson. You can't recognize him looking like this. Bones and pale flesh, that's all he is. A paramedic looks at the drip and the rib sticking out and doesn't think for a second about the king of pop, about an entertainer famous around the world. He thinks it's someone with terminal illness. They take him to hospital. It's too late. Everyone in that room knows it. Now the world will too. We'll talk about what happened next after this short break.
This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. Hello, Rockstar listeners. It is Tom here. Now, I'm one of the writers on the show and was behind quite a few of the episodes, ones like George Michael, John Lennon, Donny Hathaway and Otis Redding. I wanted to tell you quickly about DistroKid, who we've partnered with to provide Rockstar listeners with a special deal that we think you will love. Are you a musician and wondering how you can get more bang for your buck with your music? Well, get yourself on DistroKid. That's D-I-S-T-R-O-K-I-D. DistroKid is revolutionising the music business. It's the easiest way for musicians to get music onto places like Spotify, Apple, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube. Well, you name it, they can get it there. You get unlimited uploads. You'll enjoy more features than any other music distributor. And you'll get to keep 100% of your earnings. Here are just some of the things that it lets you do. Okay, easily pay your collaborators with a special feature called Splits. Send huge files to anyone with their InstaShare feature. Make mini videos to use on your socials. And stop sneaky thieves stealing your music and using it without your permission with their DistroLock feature. There's also an app where you can see your DistroKid account in one place. Check your Apple and Spotify stats and withdraw earnings. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. So head to the Apple Store or Google Play to download it. And here is the best bit. They're offering you guys a special deal. Just go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash death of a rockstar to get 30% off your first year. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash Death of a Rockstar for 30% off your first year. Where were you when you found out? How did you feel? It's madness that day. It's so big, it pretty much breaks the internet. Twitter crashes, Wikipedia crashes, instant messenger goes down. It's the instant messenger era. Google, There's so many people searching for Michael Jackson. The server thinks it's a cyber attack and shuts down. First story on all the news bulletins. First thing anyone says to anyone. 
Have You Heard? His songs are all over radio, all over TV. There's disbelief and people crying into cameras and there's conspiracy theories too. What really happened, if it happened at all? The coroner publishes his report. Says Jackson died of acute propofol and benzodiazepine intoxication. Bedtime milk and sedatives. Two months on, there's another announcement. This wasn't an accident. This was a homicide. And so there's another trial even after Michael Jackson is dead. But there's no fans outside the courtroom this time. No white doves. Murray's defence lawyers claim it was Jackson's fault. When the doctor went to the toilet, they say Jackson swallowed eight more pills. He gave himself another dose of propofol. That's what killed him. The coroner disagrees. He asks why something used for anaesthetics in surgery was being given in the home. He says the proper equipment wasn't being used. He says there's no way Jackson could have woken up, taken extra drugs, let them take effect and then stop breathing all in two minutes. The coroner thinks it's simple. The doctor cracked. He accidentally gave him too much. So Murray gets found guilty, gets four years in jail, but it's not his face as he's led out of court that you remember. It's a photo that's shown during the trial of his famous patient, of the man everyone thinks they can recognize. Michael Jackson on a gurney in the morgue. As pale as the sheets wrapped around him, puncture marks on his arms, on his legs, black tattooed lines where his eyebrows should have been, his lips tattooed bright pink too, scars behind his ears, round his face, on his wrists and neck, no hair at all. The straight black hair down to his shoulders, a wig glued to his bald scalp. Then there's the nose, or rather what's left. He'd been wearing a prosthesis, a cover-up. Now that's gone, it's just stumps of cartilage around a little dark hole. So people mourn him and buy more of his records than ever and wear t-shirts and watch his old videos, all that amazing dancing, the moves. And some of them don't want to hear what comes next. What people finally feel safe to say, now he's gone. In 2019, there's a documentary. It's called Leaving Neverland. And in it, you hear the stories of two men, Wade Robson and James Safechuck, who alleged Jackson sexually abused them as children. Maybe you've seen the film. Maybe you don't want to think again about what those two say went on at Jackson's home, about what he did to them and other boys. Maybe you don't believe it, the long testimonies, the details that keep coming and coming, the fake weddings, the love letters, the sex acts, the cover-ups and the bribes and the brainwashing. Maybe you wonder why you don't hear Jackson's music as much on the radio, even though it's still there, even though it's huge on streaming services. No one's banned him, not yet. 
Like they did after the allegations around R. Kelly, he's not been stripped of his various awards like Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein. After the documentary comes out, Jackson's music sales go up 10%. Three of his albums re-enter the UK Apple Music chart. There's a million more views of his videos than the week before. Where are you with this, man? Now you know what came after the trial. Maybe you see what Jackson did for black performers, how he broke MTV open for others to follow, how he revolutionised what radio stations would play. Maybe you hear the music and don't think about the man. You dance to the tunes for the bass lines and melodies, not the man who sings them. These songs are your memories from your life, not his. Maybe you're like the woman in green, standing on her ladder outside the courthouse in 2005. Who was she? A 44-year-old immigrant from Iran named Fariba Garmani. A woman from a place where his music was prohibited, who moved to the US because a woman could do what she likes there, who loved Jackson for his music, but for what he symbolised for her too. And maybe you see the doves and you don't think about Jackson. You think about those boys. You think about the ones no one's heard from, the ones whose normal lives ended when they were 10, 11 and 12. You think about the parents and the people who let it happen. You think about the out-of-court settlements, the silences. That's Michael Jackson, all of that after the trial falling further into the darkness, hurtling towards the end. This episode of Death of a Rockstar was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Phil Brown. For research, we used Rolling Stone magazine, the LA Times, the BBC, the Daily Mirror, and the New York Times. We read Moonwalk, Jackson's official biography, 83 Minutes by Matt Richards and Mark Langthorne, and Remember the Time by Bill Whitfield. We watched the documentaries Living with Michael Jackson, Leaving Neverland, and This Is It. We normally recommend some music to listen to at the end of these episodes, but we'll leave that up to you. The music we use in the episode is from our partner's BMG Production Music. If you want another podcast to listen to, and if you're a sports fan, we have a series called Death of a Sports Star, with episodes about Kobe Bryant, Sonny Liston, Payne Stewart and more. Just search for Death of a Sports Star in your podcast app. There'll be another Rockstar episode out on Thursday. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hi, I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McLean. We want to tell you about our podcast, None But the Brave, which is dedicated to taking a deep dive into the work of Bruce Springsteen. We're currently in our fifth season. Our latest episodes focus heavily on Bruce's 2024 tour and have featured such guests as Anthony Castrovince from MLB Network and Barstool's Kirk Minahan. We're also covering the 40th anniversary of Bruce's biggest record, Born in the USA. And as part of that, coming up this week... Uproxx cultural critic Stephen Hyden returns to the show for a fascinating hour-long conversation about his new book, 
There was nothing you could do. Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA and the End of the Heartland. To listen, you can go to our website, mbtbpodcast.com, or subscribe on your preferred podcasting platform. We hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fall Out Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. <laughs>